Welcome to Talk This Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. I'm Todd Botler, your host. I'm also editor-in-chief of Texas Swiss Water and the Texas Water Journal. Both of those publications are free, and you can find them at texasplusswater.org and texaswaterjournal.org. Today is a special day. I have as my guest Emily Lewis a shareholder and the uh, co-chair of the Natural Resources Practice Group, Clyde Snow in Salt Lake City, Utah. Emily is also an adjunct professor of law at the University of Utah. But maybe most important of all, she is the host of the Ripple Effect podcast, which she had me on as a guest about a month or two ago, which I really enjoyed. And I was uh, you know, just uh, chomping in the bed to have you on my show. And so, uh, Emily, welcome. Todd, I'm so excited to be here. It's so fun to be on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think it's I, easier. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, but no, I love your podcast and I, I love the little community of um, people that we're creating out here in the internet ether listening to fun things about water. So I really appreciate being on here and I'm very excited to join you. Well, thank you for taking time out to do this. And I've, I've um, you know, been looking forward to it. And so let's kind of start out with, you know, how you first became involved with water. Even, I mean, when you're young, when did you start like really focusing on water or, you know, was it old, older, like in college or something? Yeah, I am. Um, my journey to water, I think, has just kind of been implicit, honestly, just in, in my experience to date. Um, so I, I, I'm very fortunate in that I grew up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, my parents were early ski bums in the 1970s who moved there. And, you know, my mom went to the hospital. And my dad ended up having a mill work for many, many years, making a custom log flooring and doors. And, um, you know, I just was fortunate to grow up in an environment that was very rich in natural resources. And so from a very early age, we were big into river rafting. Um, there's a great class three section of whitewater right outside town that, you know, I grew up on on the oars. And so just uh, from a personal kind of recreational perspective, I spent a lot of time on the water growing up. And then um, throughout kind of high school, post high school, college, and actually all the way up through the middle of law school, um, I was a multi-day raft guide on the Salmon River up in Idaho, um, as well as kind of dabbling in some Idaho's here in Utah, or some rivers here in Utah. And so, um, you know, being on the water and, and kind of watching the water levels rise and fall, depending on whether or not we were below a dam or in a free-flowing section was really interesting to me. Um, it was really interesting to me where we would, we'd uh, float the headwaters um, of the salmon on, on the main salmon or the middle fork and the water would taste so clear and clean. And then you get down to Hell's Canyon um, on the snake, which is uh, the salmon runs into, and the water, you could taste all the nitrates in it physically. So you'd be like, huh, this went through a huge agricultural section of Idaho didn't it? And so uh, that kind of visceral experience just got me really interested in, um, you know, doing this more professionally. And so I actually went to law school um, with the intention of doing natural resources and more particularly water law. And, you know, I really only applied to Western programs typically that had a strong water law program. And so that was kind of my, uh, my impetus for going to water or for going to law school. And then 
I've just been extremely fortunate to, you know, really from the get-go of day one of my legal career, basically be in natural resources and, and more specifically water for about the last 10 years. What a great combination. You know, you don't meet that many people who have that kind of intimate knowledge of the resource and experience with it, uh, which you combine with your uh, career in law. And that, I imagine, just makes you that much more effective in the things that you do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing I love about water is everyone has an interesting and intimate story to it, you know, and, you know, in the recent, in my recent career um, as a private law, I worked for the state of Utah for about uh, five years at the Utah Attorney General's office, uh, three of those representing the Utah state engineer. And then for about the last seven years, I've been in private practice. And um, one of the things I love is just everyone has, if you're in this field, it's something that you know and deal with intimately and from a bunch of different perspectives. And so, you know, mine's kind of from a personal recreational background, but, um, you know, I love talking to people about, you know, I love talking to producers. They're some of my favorites, like whenever we have <laughs> meetings, I love talking to people on tractors and talking to, you you know, water users from that perspective. And I love talking to the engineers and I love talking to the technical people. And it just is a, an infinitely fascinating field. Great. Great. Well, let's kind of dive right into it, right? Um, so, you just can't get away from uh, reading something about the Colorado River, not the Texas Colorado, Colorado River, but the Colorado River out west, that big one. And uh, I've heard, of course, you know, so much about that issue uh, from the perspective of, uh, you know, the state of California and uh, Nevada and Arizona. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, tell us what is the Colorado River issue look like from kind of the perspective from Utah? Because Utah's not really tapped into the river in a major way, has it? Ah, I love the opportunity to counteract that point. <laughs> okay, because that's perfect. Well, yeah. that's great. If I'm wrong, I want to know. Well, no, I do think, um, so just first of all, you know, these are my personal opinions. You know, we represent a number of clients at our firm, you know, who do have Colorado River interests. So this is just kind of my, you know, my opinion from from working in the field and not representative of any of my clients or anything like that. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, the Colorado is um, a major topic of discussion here in the state of Utah and increasingly so, you know, over the last two years. Um, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of the California discourse or a lot of the Colorado discourse typically is about the lower basin states. Um, those are the states that developed first. Those are the states that are really, you know, going to most be acutely, you know, uh, uh, affected by shortages on the Colorado and that they have a lot of development based on that, you know, a pretty solid and stable water supply, which is becoming increasingly uncertain. Um, for the upper basin states, um, uh, it's, it, it is a little bit different. Um, and so Utah um, is a very interesting state to be in and, and work in because, you know, we do have Lake Powell, which is the large, you know, reservoir that's right at the dividing line between the upper basin and the lower basin. And, um, you know, we do have, uh, we have, you know, 23% of the upper basin's um, Colorado River portion, so, so a fairly large amount. Um, to date, we have not yet had a population that's demanded all that water, but we are in a place where we are increasing in our population. And so it's an interesting discussion about development. Um, and, you know, with climate change, we're, we're seeing just dramatic real-time reductions in the amount of water available. Um, so what I think is interesting and something that um, 
you know, I think is a, is a good uh, a, a good point of discourse kind of for the broader community to think about is that in the last probably like three or four years, Utah has really taken a strong and, and kind of assertive stance in um, taking Colorado River issues more seriously, both at kind of a, you know, independent water pr- provider level, but also at a state level, which I think is kind of cool. Um and so, some of the things that we've done here in the state recently is um, we have created the Utah-Colorado River Authority, which is a um, intrastate body. So, it's got representatives from um, kind of all of the various, uh, you know, sub-basin tributaries uh, um, in, in the Colorado Basin, as well as uh, tribal representatives. We just added a tribal representative this year and um, um, some burgeoning uh, advisory boards. And so, this was passed in 2021 so we're in the authority kind of got set up about a, a year ago well passed and we kind of got it set up last summer and it's just had its first couple um, meetings but the purpose of the authority is to let Utah speak on the Upper Colorado River Commission with kind of a, a unified voice and, and really kind of to ferret out a, a lot of the internal issues in the state about how we use and develop our Colorado River portion, what are our priorities, you know, how is we as a state going to address, you know, coming issues of drought and climate change and resource development. And it, it's really an exciting development in a lot of ways because it's providing a forum to have a lot of discourse about a lot of complicated questions and really invite the experts in and the stakeholders in to get to um, some consensus on some, on some complicated and, and oftentimes contentious questions. So do you think, you know, prior to that, was there any kind of a feeling, I guess, maybe in, in Utah that all the kind of maybe big future decisions about the the river are in in play and uh there's a lot going on and and maybe hey this is a time where we need to become more unified and more active in in determining what that future is going to be yeah and again these are just my personal opinions from an outside perspective but I think that, you know, everywhere you look in water, things are changing. You know, the last five years, I mean, I've been, I'm in my 12th year of my career. So kind of beginning of mid career, I guess. I, I don't even, I don't know where you put that. <laughs> but, uh, and um, I just think that water in the West, no matter if it's a Colorado question or a Great Salt Lake question, which I think we might talk about later today, um, is it, just becoming more acute. All, all the questions are becoming more uh, pointed because drought is real um, and it, it's coming and, and it's um, and more so just outside the immediate acute impacts of the drought we're in I just think we're seeing that resiliency is needed because we're just going to have to do more with less but also just do more with disruption because there you know the climate models also show there's going to be generally diminishing flows in the Colorado River Basin and also across the Wasatch Front but you know, one out of every 10 years might be a huge water year. You know, it, it's also disruption. You know, it, the, the real issue is not necessarily just drought, but dealing with a, a changed and changing ecosystem that doesn't provide the water supply in the same way that we've anticipated. You know, all of our models need to change. All of our projections need to change. A lot of our management decisions, you know, need to adapt. Um, you know, we here in the state of Utah, um, and I love this. I have to tell people this. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do teach at the law school. Um, I'm the adjunct water law professor. 
And one of the things I love about Utah is, you know, water planning is like in the DNA of the state. Like we've never been asleep at the wheel when it comes to water. I mean, um, there's this great uh, 1903 irrigation survey by Elroy Mead that comes in and it talks about the, you know, Salt Lake Valley and the Utah Lake Valley and how, you know, the Mormon pioneer trains who came in and, and developed the valley were just prescient in terms of water development and how we've had this, you know, you know, incredibly robust uh, irrigation system system that's built on this kind of communal concept of, you know, water shares and water companies that really, um, you know, struck Elroy Mead as very different and distinct from other irrigation services he had done in the West. And so here in Utah, you know, water development and planning has been, you know, since day one, you know, Brigham Young came here and we have our, uh, there's this, uh, the July 24th is the the day that they celebrate the you know, founding of the Salt Lake Valley. But, uh, I was doing some water rights work for Salt Lake City, which has a pretty water, large water rights portfolio. And there's a July 23rd water right of when the exploratory party first came into the Salt Lake Valley and like stuck their shovel down in City Creek. And so it's kind of a long-winded answer, but, but I think that, you know, in terms of your immediate question of, you know, our attentions to the Colorado recently – you know, Utah has always been thinking about water. I just think the conditions have changed and that our conversation and our focus has changed. So, so tell me if, if this is close to the mark or not. When, when mm-hmm. I look at many of the other Western states, um, there is a substantial history of interstate, you know, water management and work with the federal government uh, through these big water projects and uh, large rights associated with them. And Texas is a bit different um, with, except for the Rio Grande, you know, most of the rivers are pretty much within the boundaries of the state. We do have compacts with, 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 some states, uh, but the majority of the water supply is really internal to the state. And so state water law, state water policy is what has driven everything. Uh, There aren't any federal water rights here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I look at Utah and I kind of think, you know, it seems like maybe, you know, that that situation may be somewhat more similar to Utah than some of the other Western states, because many of your water resources, it looks like might, you know, be uh, from, you know, watersheds within the state that you're not sharing all that water. And, but I may be wrong about that because I don't know all that much about the hydrology of Utah, but I know that, that with the Colorado issue, you know, that's quite a bit different um, than what I just described. And so I'm just kind of curious about that. If the the history has been more of a, you know, uh, intrastate, you know, management of water now becoming more of an interstate management system. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, a fair view from an outside perspective. But Utah actually is um, kind of subject to um, two interstate compacts. And then we also have some interstate groundwater issues with Nevada. Um, But, um, you know, we'll talk about the Colorado in a second because that's a fascinating story on its own. But, you know, outside and independent of of our interest in the Colorado River Compact, you know, Utah is also subject to the Bear River Compact. And so the Bear starts up in the high Uinta Mountains um, in the north northeastern part of Utah. It runs north uh, into Wyoming, the best state, (laughs) Uh, through past Evanston, Wyoming, and then kind of tucks back up into uh, Utah and then goes into Idaho, 
So it's a three-party mm. compact um, and then goes past Bear Lake, which is actually not hydrologi- hydrologically connected to the Bear River, but has been connected through man-made means and is a key component of the Bear River system. It, it has it holds a lot of storage water. And then the bear um, runs through Utah and then exits at the Great Salt Lake. So, um, wow. you know, okay. yeah. So we, so, and the Bear River is actually, you know, our firm is, is fortunate to represent a couple large interests on the Bear River. And, you know, we've got 1909, 1912, you know, 1859, like some pretty old water rights on the bear. And so it's pretty fascinating in terms of just kind of how the priority system works um, in an interstate model. So, um, so we've been dealing with that for, you know, over a century for sure. And then in terms of the Colorado River, um, Utah, you know, was the recipient of the Central Utah Project, you know, kind of back in the 1950s. And so, you know, that uh, gave a large um, uh, uh, injection of uh, federal money to build several large uh, federal reservoirs, projects, federal projects here in the state of Utah. And that, um, under the Central Utah Project, we actually bring over Colorado River water into the Wasatch Front to where it's not um, historically uh, native. And so we do have a a fair amount of our water along the Wasatch Front is Colorado River water and is a transbasin diversion. And so, you know, those are kind of our two major um, interstate bodies of water and then we don't need to go in this today because it is its own its own animal but you know in the last 15 years or so we've had increasing um, focus on and conversations with Nevada regarding um, the interstate aquifer that uh, sits between Nevada and Utah so you know we have a lot going on um, in terms of our water resources we're also to and this should be noted right up front the second driest state in the nation so we have you know, pretty limited water resources. So, um, second driest state in the nation. We have a population of about three million people right now. Um, it is one of the fastest growing economies in the country, and by 2065, we're anticipated to have over six million people here. So, it is literally a doubling of our population on diminishing water resources. So, Nevada's the driest state. Is I think that Nevada's right? the driest. Yeah, you know, we okay. kind of like to like poke each other about which one's actually right. the driest. But right. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I would like to be the one who claims the, you know, the winner of that. Yeah. That one be the no. driest state. But well, so uh, uh, let me just ask quickly: the name of that inter, that water uh, that aquifer that you share mm-hmm. with Nevada? What's that? It's a Snake called? Valley Aquifer. Snake Valley Aquifer. Yeah, okay. and there's been a bunch of efforts um, to uh, pump and pipe groundwater down to the population centers, and they've gone up and back and forth between the Nevada Supreme Court several times. And I think we're at a point where those activities are presently stayed. So, gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Well, any uh, you know predictions, kind of you know uh, thoughts about where you think the Colorado issue is going among. Uh, the western states what what you think might ultimately happen here in the next few years I'm just kind of curious if something yeah i mean again like these are outside personal perspectives these you know these aren't representations on any clients but you know the sj Quinney college of law um you know my alma mater and where i teach at had a fantastic colorado river symposium um in mid-march this year and it was great we had a lot of um voices from the different states come and 
I think the conversation is is realistically going to be one of shared sacrifice. And so um, there are some very complicated questions coming down the pipe, so to say, at, at the state. But one of the things that I found very heartening um, is one, I think that, you know, Utah's always had wonderful water professionals, but, you know, I think that the state has put a lot of time and resources and money into the Colorado River issues in the last couple of years, which I think is going to produce a lot of really productive dialogue, a lot of really productive science, a lot of really productive kind of, you know, collaborative solution making that hopefully, you know, we can share with our sister states. So, so I think that um, it's funny, <laughs> maybe because I have the podcast and I'm a chatty Kathy and I put myself out there, but like I get a lot of calls from journalists to talk about, you know, Colorado River stuff. And it's, it's funny or just water in general. And they always want to go to what's the fight going to look like. And I was like, hopefully nothing. Hopefully there isn't a fight. Hopefully that's not where we spend our energy. <laughs> Cause you know, the, the projections are, are predicting a hotter, drier future. And there's just not a lot of time and bandwidth to put our energy into fighting. And so, and so one of the things I find very heartening is while there can still be, you know, disagreements or dialogue that, you know, about complicated questions, it, it seems to me from an outside perspective that, that there is a sincere interest amongst the states to come together and really find some solutions, um, like the the DROA agreement and then like the 500 plus agreement. Like there's been a bunch of agreements recently that have been pretty innovative, um, you know, sacrifice sharing documents <laughs> amongst yeah. the parties. Yeah. I think I think collaboration is is much more um, common mm-hmm. over these issues in the West than than I think the public generally realizes. I mean, there's certainly there are a lot of instances where there's no collaboration at the t- at the moment. People are really duking it out um, in court or or legislatures or someplace else, but in uh, many other. Uh, disputes over water, conflicts over water. Uh, there uh, is a lot of uh, discussion and dialogue and shared sacrifice, like you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And creativity. I mean, lots of creativity, though. Like, that's a fun thing. I think that, like, we're, get, we're entering this really new age of, like, really interesting science and really interesting solutions and just some, like, really creative sharing agreements. And, like, it's 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 not a field for boring. It's not a boring field. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are a lot more options on how to to uh, come up with a you know a solution uh, mm. that works today than they used to be 30 years ago for sure so with that let's go ahead and switch to the Great Salt Lake and so <clears throat> you know I wanted to mention um, there is this really and you're, I'm sure you know all about this this really fascinating landscape art mm-hmm. you know in the on the edge of the Great Salt Lake that I had read about in a magazine and then I flew over it and saw it. This is the, it's like a, it's almost like a spiral. The spiral you know, jetty. That is, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. Right, right. That's, yep. you know, it's above water and then it's underwater and and I saw that and I thought, wow, you know, that's really cool. And that was several years ago mm-hmm. and I know that the level of the lake has changed quite a bit since then and so um let's talk a little bit about uh the great salt lake and uh you know some of the issues that it faces and i and maybe just you could start um you know 
what's the trend for the lake over the last uh, several years? Yeah, definitely. So the Great Salt Lake, for those of you who are, you know, in the Texas listenership or, you know, who may not be as familiar, is an internationally important water body. So it is one of a few saline lakes, um, you know, that is a key to critical migratory paths for migratory birds. Um, it is a nesting ground for um, the thousands, thousands and thousands, like millions of birds, like not joking. Um, and not to plug my own podcast by right. any means, but if you want to listen about Great Salt Lake stuff, I've got four or five very, very good Great Salt Lake podcasts about specific elements through Westminster Institute and Audubon Society who have worked on Great Salt Lake issues. Um, but it is um, also something that people don't realize is the largest producer of brine shrimp. Um, and so brine shrimp is a, they're sea monkeys, basically. They're sea monkeys. Um, <laughs> but uh, brine shrimp is a critical, uh, a critical, critical, critical food source for farmed fishing. So if you get farmed fish from anywhere in Southeast Asia, it's probably on um, based on Great Salt Lake brine shrimp. So it is both a, a critically important water body for migratory birds, but it's also a huge economic driver for brine shrimp. Um, we also have a um, ton of evaporative mining processes on the lake. Um, the lake is so saline; it's like I think I don't know the, I don't know the exact specific, but I think it's like ten times saltier than the ocean. And so we have these very large evaporative um, operations on the north end of the lake that produce sulfate of potash, which is an organic fertilizer and uh, dust suppressant. And so it's also like a huge, uh, a huge driver for um, kind of the mining economy here in the state of Utah as well, which is fascinating. Can I tell you just a really interesting story real quickly about that? <laughs> like an aside. Sure. <laughs> so the, the Great Salt Lake so we have all these mining operations uh, on the great on the north end of the Great Salt Lake, and basically what they do is they basically have these diked ponds, and then they like get a saline solution that basically gets denser and denser and denser through each pond, and then because it's so corrosive out there, you can't pipe that. And so what the producers out there have done is they created this thing called the Barron's Trench, where they basically have um, dredged a trench across the entire north arm of the Great Salt Lake. And I'm talking, this is like miles and miles, like 20 miles, maybe, I don't know, like huge amounts of space. And um, and they let that super saline brine flow through that trench. And because it's more viscous and more dense in the salt water above it, it flows by gravity under the other water and goes to their processing plant. Like it's like, oh, gotcha. it's like a whole nother world out there and it's, and it's all pink. It's all pink. And so if you guys ever watch a uh, ghostbusters two, when I like teach this in my, in my law school class, I say, it's like the pink slime under New York, pretty much. <laughs> Do you know what the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, total dissolve, dissolve solids are for that. I mean, is it, I mean, oh, what the, it's, I mean, it's gotta be crazy. I mean, like it, the lake itself is like 10, is like 10 times saltier than the sea. So, I mean, like whatever that brine so is, it's about 350,000. Yeah. 350, yeah like I, I don't have a science on it, oh, okay. but it's real salty. It's real salty. Um, so, so that's, like it's be 350 parts per thousand, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, a big number. A big number. 35. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, huh. 
So it's uh, so just that's the context for those who don't live in Utah. Every, you know, everyone focuses on the Colorado, but the Great Salt Lake is you know also a key critical body here in the state. And so what's interesting about that is that you know inflows to the Great Salt Lake come from a couple places. So we have basically three inflows. We've got those from the Bear River, which I mentioned earlier, and that's also mm-hmm. kind of the breadbasket of Utah. So a lot of our agricultural producers do pull water off the Bear, the Jordan River, which um, comes from Utah Lake, and then kind of the uh, you know the west side of the Wasatch Mountains, so kind of the Wasatch Front. Also, though, through the Jordan, because we do have those trans-basin diversions through the Central Utah Project, Colorado River water can end up in the Great Salt Lake through the Jordan. So, it's also, you know, I like to talk about Utah as like one big sweater, where if we pull something, things kind of um, come up. And then um, Farmington Bay is the other uh, freshwater source. So, last summer, uh, the lake has seen, um, after record levels in the early 1980s, like literal flooding down the streets of, Great, of you know, Salt Lake City, um, since then, the lake has been in pretty steady decline, and we have reached the lowest point of, of lo- Lake Elations ever last summer. So, it's, it, is a, oh, okay. yeah, it is a critically endangered water body. And so, the since, issue... Uh, what you, what would the first year be that record keeping uh ever uh like tree rings that like they've gone back but like since recording oh, I don't, okay i mean this is like this is this is the lowest the lake has ever been because because the great salt lake is also the remnant okay. of what it was lake bonneville which was this huge lake right. that like covered most of utah and parts of nevada but um i mean Definitely since recording, but I think the scientists think that this is the lowest lake level that the lowest level it's ever ever been. Um, So we're kind of starting to talk a little bit into Owens Lake issues. So you know the problem with the Great Salt Lake is that with dust, the dust. Yeah, it's a very shallow lake, so declining lake levels literally expose hundreds of miles of open playa. And so, being a, a citizen here in Salt Lake City immediately adjacent to our Great Salt Lake, um, you know, dust is becoming a legitimate issue, uh, not just from a public health concern, because it's also like arsenic-laden dust <laughs> um, from all the weird salts. Um, but what happens is is that that dust lands on our snowpack and just accelerates the, the, melt, the melt cycle. And so it's also having some pretty dramatic impacts on our water cycle. So the Great Salt Lake in a lot of ways, um, while the Colorado is important for sure, but in a lot of ways, the Great Salt Lake is is kind of the defining water issue of our time because it's so intricately related to so many other things. Well, what's uh, uh, so? What is the state of Utah doing with regard to that? What's did, is there a plan in place? Are you putting one together now? What what what's the situation? say i think that um i hate to say it um but uh the the drought brings people together (laughs) um i mean the great salt lake's been in decline for quite some time but it hasn't really gotten outside you know kind of some academic circles and some water professional circles who've realized it's you know the relevancy for quite some time but in the public eye it really hasn't gotten the attention it should until the last two or three years and luckily i would say that attention has um, garnered some really positive activities um the 2022 legislative session was just a boon 
soon for the lake. So what we did is we had a couple different bills passed. Um, um, actually, even before passing the bills on January 5th, I believe, of this year, the Speaker of the House, Brad Wilson, held a half-day seminar just on the lake for all the legislators. So basically, he was rallying his troops to say, this is a public priority. We would like to address it. There's been four or five years of good reports telling us what we should do. And actually, our firm was fortunate enough to uh, draft it in 2020, uh, a document called Legal Strategies for the Great Salt Lake that talks about some water law considerations for bringing water to the lake. Um, Our report, in combination with another report called the HRC 10 report, laid out a pretty clear um, uh, path for kind of what could be next step. And along with along with you know additional documentation, but those two reports are pretty key, um, and that led to some pretty proactive legislation. So. Um, what we had is we've kind of got three or four bills. One of them is HB 33, which is an adjustment to our in-stream flow bill that allows um, prior to prior to the change this year, our in-stream flow bill was very, very restrictive. Like only certain people could hold them. It could only be between a reach where there's no intervening diverter. It got the most junior priority in the system, which basically means you don't get water anyway for your purpose. And what we did is we took away all those restrictions and basically anyone can find for an in-stream flow change application as long as it's related to the mission of a couple of our state agencies, which are lake-related um, and, and elsewise. So that's a real key right there is we've kind of opened up some ability to kind of legally shepherd water to the lake for purposes. Um, the other thing we did is HB 410, which is we created a $40 million trust for the lake. And that trust is going to get set up this summer. And it's going to be operated by two nonprofits to be determined. And the reason that we chose to have the trust operated by a nonprofit is to leverage private capital, um, whereas the state's not as able to do that so quickly. And so the trust will work pretty hand in hand with our state agencies, but the goal is to purchase, buy, and lease water for the lake. And so $40 million is just a drop in the bucket. It's not really going to get us where we need to go, but it's at least to start to kind of start the engines on things. And then we also uh, appropriated another $5 million to do kind of what we think will become a Great Salt Lake Integrated Management Study Plan. So the state really did put some resources behind addressing this issue. Um, you know, those are fantastic efforts. Um, that being said, it's a big problem. And it's, um, you right. know, we're, we're dealing with, uh, you know, decades of decades of drip, 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 the wrong direction. And so, um, you know, I think that we're not going to immediately see, you know, shining waters on the shores of the Great Salt Lake next year. But I think we're starting to really understand its importance and its impact and kind of put some tools in place. So it sounds like you've uh, modified your uh, in-stream flow provisions for surface water rides so that environmental flows, uh, you know, can be, you know, guaranteed um, in some way. And there's some money for, I guess, purchasing some rights. Purchasing or leasing, yep. Mm-hmm. Right. You can use that, that new uh, system. And uh, I couldn't. Um, now, did you hint, or did maybe you didn't, that there was also some discussion about importing sources, or did I, did I, am I making no, that up? No, just saying that um, just the way that the state's plumbed 
um, since we have that transbasin diversion through the Central Utah Project that brings water up and over, it's actually fascinating. We kind of collect it up in um, our strawberry, um, our Stillwater Dam, and then kind of bring it up and over through these big tunnels um, at Diamond Fork to the to the Wasatch Front. That water can that Colorado River water uh, import water can get stored in in Utah Lake, which is to the south of the Great Salt Lake, but connected to the Jordan River, and then you know Jordan River flows can actually meet, go into the Great Salt Lake. So there is a transbasin diversion element of this as well. So um, really Utah is, you know, water management in Utah is, is thinking about and kind of balancing a, a big chessboard, not just a small chessboard, you know, because it's like mm-hmm. if we can reduce demand on the Wasatch Front, that means less imported water, which means water can stay on the Colorado Riverside, which means that we have to, you know, could potentially deal with Great Salt Lake stuff just with Wasatch Front native water. So it's it's a very complicated complicated state with a lot of big plumbing (laughs) sounds like it sounds like it um well let's let's kind of you know start to to come to our final question here and that is about your water banking program yeah it's something that we discussed on your podcast but i'd like to discuss a little bit on our pod on this podcast and uh you've got a program which is modeled i guess uh, somewhat after what Washington State and Oregon have done, and it's a two, t- more or less, and it's a two-track program. You want to, yeah, uh, talk about it a little bit. Yeah, you know, as kind of one of the many efforts that the state of Utah has taken in recent times to, you know, develop some tools for water users, um, you know. I think there's this kind of like public narrative that like Utah is asleep at the wheel, which is so funny to me because maybe I'm like too biased and like too in it to like think that. Um, but uh, but I we're, we are we have been kind of going blazing and guns out here for the last little bit on a bunch of different projects. Uh, we've got an ag optimization task force that's been doing a ton with like on farm, um, you know, on farm improvements and management for for ag water. We've got really um, you know you know while we're not Las Vegas because Las Vegas has been doing this for 20 years, you know, really making gains on our municipal use and reductions in our municipal use. Uh, We had our first, you know, uh, no turf bill on state land, state properties this year, um, et cetera. And then one of the other things we've done is um, in starting about 2017, we really kind of started a stakeholder working group to discuss, you know, water banking, quote unquote, you know, but water making, water banking, as you and I know, Todd, means many things to many people. Right. <laughs> um, but what we did is, you know, we, we really wanted to start an effort that says, what does water banking mean for the state of Utah? And so we kind of did a uh, internal assessment of, um, you know, what was already happening here in the state of Utah, you know, like what kind of leasing activity was happening, what kind of sharing activities were happening, you know, were there any water auctions going on, you know, kind of what kind of water transactions were presently occurring in the state. And then from that, we then moved on to looking at what other states had done. You know, Idaho to the north of us has a um, very, very robust banking program um, through the Idaho Board of Water Resources. And um, we didn't actually model it after the state of Washington, but we've come up kind of like with a program that is like eerily similar to Washington kind of on our own, which which I think is actually kind of exciting. Um, and so what we kind of came up with is we really wanted to 
here in the state of Utah give more tools to local water users. And so we wanted to create more opportunities for water users to address some market barriers that they were currently seeing that were prohibiting water leasing. And so from the very get-go, you know, we decided that the three words that we were going to focus on were voluntary, temporary, and local. So um, this was not local, being this was not going to be a top-down government program. It's going to have to come up from the water users. Temporary in that we really wanted to keep, you know, water rights with the water right owners. We really wanted to, um, you know, avoid buy and dry. Um, and then voluntary, like you only do it if you want to do it, you know. And so what we've kind of created is what we call this kind of like laboratory of democracy banking principle. <laughs> and so we drafted some legislation and had it passed in 2020. And really what the what the legislation does is it provides some, you know, additional tools for those water users who are interested in um, entering a lease arrangement for their water. We gave them some tools that they had identified as something that they were looking for. So basically, and I'll talk about the two tracks here in just a second, but if you uh, uh, establish a leasing arrangement that works for you at the local ground, local levels, and there's two ways you can do that, which we'll talk about that. Basically, you can apply to have that leasing arrangement be approved as a water bank to our Board of Water Resources. The Board of Water Resources conducts a completeness review, so they don't take any substantive judgment on what you've done. I mean, you could literally have like a bulletin board, or you could have like a, an auction, or you could have something that works for the local water users. And as long as the local water users agree, the board is like, cool, good, go for it. And we do have some protections in there to make sure that the, you know, the, the arrangement takes care of you know, how they're going to wind down if they decide not to continue, how they're going to like keep track of water, et cetera. And then once the leasing arrangement is approved to be a water bank by the Board of Water Resources, it's extended certain benefits. Like we have kind of like a streamlined administrative process for changing water rights to be in the bank. Um, it's kind of a one-time process. And then once they're in the bank, they can move around freely. Um, water rights in the bank are protected from forfeiture. And that was to kind of encourage, you know, areas where there's uh, urban land transitions or like rural to urban land transitions. All those irrigation companies who might be physically losing their place of use can have a way to preserve their water right um, and we also uh, said anything any water right that's approved to be in a water bank can be used for environmental purposes and as we talked earlier Todd we just changed our in-stream flow statute and so prior to that 2022 change the water banking statute was kind of like the most flexible way to use a, a water right for, for in-stream flow purposes so so that's kind of the goal. The goal is to say, you know, we want to encourage you to do water transactions. We want to keep money in the local communities. We want to encourage you guys to find something that works for you. Every water bank in the state is going to look different, um, but they have the central premise of it's local water users coming together, finding a transaction that works for them. And so, you know, we also, to kind of give some sideboards, um, recognize kind of two models of leasing transactions that, that are, can be used. Um, one is called a contract water bank. And essentially, it's a contract, you know, just being like, I party A lease water to you party B. Like, it's pretty simple. And you could have a couple people involved in that leasing contract. Um, for example, our pilot project has an irrigation company that's going to follow land and lease shares to some local nonprofits. So that's one. 
Um, and, uh, and the only caveat with that is that you have to have a public entity involved. And that's just so that we can kind of graft on to the public notice requirements. You know, um, we want to make sure that private speculators couldn't make a contract and, you know, get the forfeiture protections that they, you know, would want. Um, so, so, you know, that just kind of recognizes that leasings occurred, you know, for a very long time. And we just wanted to give uh, water users an opportunity to transition their leasing into a bank. Um, the second path is through what's called the statutory water bank. And that's intended to be kind of more like a middleman, like a like a turnkey transaction where it's like, I have water. I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to give it to the bank. The bank's going to take care of finding someone to lease it out. I don't have water. I want water. I don't know anyone to get it from. I go to the bank and try and get water. So like it's a legal entity um, organized for the purpose of leasing water. So so that's kind of the, the premise of the statute. And then as you and I talked about um, in our podcast, I sit as the Utah Water Banking Program Manager. And so we've got a three three to four, we've asked for an extension due to some COVID delays um, pro- year project with about $800,000 of funding to um, do three or four pilot projects, kind of testing these principles um, here in the state of Utah. And we are right now wrapping up about three of our pilots and are kind of starting up a a new fourth one that we were able to add in because we came in under budget. So, yeah, that was long, long long-winded. Sorry, Todd. (laughs) No, no, it's not. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, in a few couple of years, I mean, you and I are going to be talking, you know, Mm -hmm. before that, I'm sure, but in a couple of years, we should kind of revisit to, to see that program to see, you know, what it's accomplished. Yep. You know, after operating for, I guess it was 2020 is when it started. Yeah, 2020. And then realistically, we are not going to run any water under our pilots under tw- in the 2022 season. We got one bank set up and uh, we're in the middle of the change application process right now. So we've gotten the banking application done and approved, and now we're trying to move the water rights through our traditional administrative process. Kind of the way the banks are set up is they have a service area, kind of like an irrigation company has a service area or a municipality has a service area. And you know you can kind of move the water anywhere within that service mm-hmm. area according to the bank's principles. You know, like there's, you still have to take monitor it. You can't have double dipping. You know, the bank is still responsible for making sure that that water is used appropriately but anywhere within that area you have flexibility to move it and so right now um, in our price area pilot bank um, we're at the change application process Um, our second uh, pilot project the cash valley area actually chose not to become a water bank and that's okay because actually we call it the water banking project but the official title is the statewide water marketing strategy report (laughs) and so we're also looking at you know Banking is one tool and the tool we're going to use to ask the questions, but it could very well be that just a private lease between two people makes the most sense, you know, and that is relevant data. We want to encourage that. And so um, our Cash Valley pilot project actually ended up just being a private lease between two of the parties that we originally started talking with. We kind of... you know, initiated conversations with five or six parties thinking that we were going to have this kind of like integrated program between a bunch of irrigation companies. And then that just, you know, after asking a series of questions, there just wasn't the demand to to merit building a bank. And so two of the parties were like, well, I've got late season storage water and you need it. So we kind of created this uh, leasing pool. And then the third pilot project 
is up in Snyderville Basin. And that pilot project is one where the new HB 33 bill with the in-stream flows um, has really changed the discussion. And we might just look as like doing a private lease because we don't need to set up a water bank now to get some of the benefits that we originally wanted. So that's, that's interesting. And then our fourth project that we're just kind of about a month and a half in really looking at, you know, critically um, is a groundwater bank for agricultural purposes. And that's going to be done in Iron County. So yeah, I mean, every day is fascinating. Every day is something new. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I've, you know, um, you know, not that many people could say that they've they've got a job that um, presents a, a new and interesting question every day. Oh, so. dude, I feel like I've got too many new interesting questions. Some days I'm like, <laughs> I should just do insurance defense. Jeez, it's so uh, much simpler. <laughs> yeah, but not not as exciting. No, not at all. Probably. I would last like no. a day in that job. Not no anyone listening no. who does insurance defense. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. think I don't think probably not listen to this podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> so. So Emily, let's go ahead and wrap up, and and why don't you uh, tell us though first? How can uh, you describe the the conference you had at the law school mm-hmm. recently? Um, tell us how. Uh, we can find materials from that or if you have a recording associated with some of the discussion, is there, is there any way uh, our listeners might be able to access that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so the Utah loves, we love to put our stuff out there. So SJ Quinney College of Law is the, uh, was the host institution and inside uh, the College of Law, we have a program called the Stegner Center and the Stegner Center is the natural resources related um, program. And so if you just Google Stegner Center, University of Utah, you will find you know, most likely recordings of the entire conference and materials, but they also do um, monthly brown bags on various topics. And so if you want, um, and uh, if you want to do like uh, um there's some like specific ones on kind of like like Powell pipeline development and there's other ones on like the Great Salt Lake. So like there's a lot more there than just the just the Colorado River Conference. Um, another place I p- have people check out is if they are interested in Great Salt Lake items, the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College also has a ton of materials. So they're really, really good. Um, and the Utah Division of Natural Resources has a pretty active and robust YouTube channel. So they also have a lot of materials out there for for you know lectures they hold and then also not to be shameless i typically try and pick podcast topics for my podcast ripple effect that come up in my work so we've had a lot of discussions about colorado River stuff recently um we had a really good one with jason robinson a little while ago now um, and a lot of really good great salt lake ones we've had a lot about um the ag optimization committee here in the state and so if you're interested in utah it the podcast itself is, is much broader than just Utah, but we do talk about a lot of Utah items on that podcast. Well, that was actually my final question for you. How do they, how do they find the ripple effect? Do they go to Apple podcasts yeah. or SoundCloud or what, what do you suggest? Wherever you get your podcast streaming done, it's there. 
<laughs> but that's what I love about it. It's like, it's such a great forum. I mean, we met through our, through the podcast and mm-hmm. it's just such a great way to like, especially during COVID, you know, the, the early parts of COVID to, to reach out and talk to your colleagues, you know, and, and just really learn what people are doing. And there's, there's so much activity in the water space right now. There's so much activity. And so, um, it, it's, it's fun to reach out and talk to people and, and see what they're doing. And, and, um, if anybody has an idea that they want to talk about too, it, it's an open forum. So great. Great. Well, Emily, thank you for being a, a guest on talk plus water. Well, Todd, I love being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's, um, I love your podcast. You produce great work where I love the conversations that we're having. And so, you know, um, well, I'm just excited to kind of see what happens in the next year and we'll definitely be in touch about water banking stuff. Um, but, uh, sure. We'll be seeing each other around the internets. I, I bet we will. Yep. I do look forward to talking to you again, especially after some of my uh, water markets research is, is matured a little bit. So, so great. Well, this has been talk plus water and my guest today was Emily Lewis, a shareholder and co-chair of the natural resource practice group with Clyde Snow in Salt Lake City, Utah. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and to say that if you liked this episode of Topless Water, please let us know by giving it a like. Uh, my name's Todd Bottler. Let's talk water again soon. 